Bill and Melinda Gates have spent tens of billions of dollars over two decades to support efforts to improve global health and education, the climate change fight, and gender equality. They say the experience has made them optimists. You're listening to the Business Extra podcast coming from the National in Abu Dhabi. I'm Mustafa Al-Rawi, Assistant Editor-in-Chief. With me is Kelsey Warner, our future editor. How are you, Kelsey? Hi, Mustafa. Good. Good to be here. Good. Uh, a little later on, Kelsey's going to talk to Nora Super, who's the senior director of the Milken Institute Center for the Future of Aging. We'll have a little bit more on that later. But for now, uh, we get back to Bill and Melinda Gates, who put out their annual letter for their eponymous foundation. Uh, will you allow me to quote, Kelsey? Sure. Okay, this is from Bill and Melinda Gates. Altogether, our foundation has spent $53.8 billion over the last 20 years. On the whole, we're thrilled with what it's accomplished. But has every dollar we've spent had the effect we've hoped for? No. We've had our share of disappointments, setbacks, and surprises. We think it's important to be transparent about our failures as well as our successes. And it's important to share what we've learned. So Kelsey, what what did they learn according to their letter? So what they've learned really is they started out as a public health and education fund. And in the last few years, in a lot of ways, have pivoted with the onset of the climate change crisis and this understanding that gender inequality is the root of a lot of our economic issues. So I think what it indicated to me in terms of their fund deployment in the next 20 years is, yes, we'll see more investment on vaccinations, but we're also going to see a lot more innovation and power behind climate change solutions and gender equality. You mentioned gender equality. And I, when I read the letter, I thought what was instructive was that they they talk about their experience in health and education in areas in particular. But going forward, it's very much the gender equality and the climate change fight that they think will define perhaps the next 20 years of what right. they're trying to do. Right. And they can't ignore the climate change fight. They can't, stay, they can't stay out of it. I mean, in the last 24 hours, they've put $100 million towards a coronavirus vaccine. So they're still very much focused on public health. But I do think what Bill Gates and Melinda wrote, Melinda Gates wrote, was we need to be more innovative and more cooperative than we've ever been. An unprecedented scale of innovation and cooperation where philanthropy, the private sector and government need to all take part if we're to have a chance at moving the needle on climate change. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that the relationship between philanthropy, governments, the private sector is is key for for them for what they're saying. Sure, which is why we're talking about the largest foundation in the world on the Business Extra podcast is because you can't, they're inextricably linked. The private sector and government are inextricably linked to what uh, the Gates Foundation deploys. They've spent, they also reveal that they've spent, you know, 54 billion, as you said, but they still have tens of billions in their endowment still to come. So, I mean, Bill Gates, everybody will know him, um, maybe from the foundation, maybe from giving half his money away. And persuading other people like other billionaires like Warren Buffett to give their money away. But of course, he's the Microsoft founder. So he spent you know, the beginning part of his career building up Microsoft to be still be one of the most important tech companies in the world. Right. It's part of the big four. It's actually moving in on market share in cloud. It's very well placed still in 2020. Yes. But he's not involved day to day. No. But he, you know, he's, he's used all his business knowledge, all his knowledge of innovation, um, of um, getting essentially an industry up, up off the ground. He's partnered with his wife, who's a philanthropist as well. And they've decided that the way to kind of 
instigate innovation in key, key areas like health and, and education is to use the wealth of not just himself, but to also encourage other business people to use their wealth to do that. And again, it comes back to this idea of which should be innovating, which should be leading the innovation in these key areas, government, private sector, foundations like theirs. And I think they, they seem to have come up with the answer of a little bit of it needs to be a cooperation. Yeah. And they spoke to the vaccine cooperation that they started a few years ago, Gavi, which they have actually drawn a line to actually decreasing vaccine prices um, from $3.65 to less than a dollar on one really important vaccine in terms of treating uh, treatable diseases. And so philanthropy absolutely can move the needle on what the private sector looks like. Yes. And so that's one metric. And you've got you know, one of the best business minds in the world actually drawing that return on investment line. He also, I mean, the other one point that I thought was really interesting was Melinda writing that any girl born anywhere in the world today is worse off than her male counterpart. Uh, And we see that most prevalently in the private sector. The way that this takes root most perniciously is within the private sector and lack of opportunity and economic equality. Um, So you have to link them. You can't silo philanthropy from anything else i thought it was interesting their viewpoint on on gender equality is it's just not being made a priority so they're not saying that you can't fix it but if we make it a priority then we're more likely to be able to close say the gap on pay between men and women and they said that they hesitated a few years ago to become vocal uh, advocates for gender equality they thought they were too late in the game they they weren't expert enough uh, but you know everyone has to speak up in order for them to make change conversely I almost found their assessment of climate change pessimistic, even though they said they're optimists, because they said the best way to deal with climate change was to make people resilient to the effects of climate change in areas around the world where they they feel the effects most, which almost indicates they don't believe you can stop climate change. Adaptation. That's right. Right, evolution. I, I actually, it's pessimistic, but it's how we've gotten on for the last millions of years. <laughs> We're going to have to evolve. So- Pessimistic, realistic. I mean, certainly in general, if uh, Bill and Melinda Gates uh, are planning to put more money towards these issues, then yes, let them be optimistic. Um, We've been at the Milken Institute's Middle East and Africa Summit in Abu Dhabi, where health uh, and wellness have been part of the focus. Uh, Kelsey, you've been sort of mingling with uh, big names like Bridgewater Associates' Ray Dalio, uh, Apollo Global Management's Leon Black, Mubadala Investment Company's Khaldun uh, al-Mubarak. Deepak Chopra. Deepak Chopra. I met Deepak Chopra yes. this morning. I talked to him. He wears his iPhone on his body as a purse. And I asked him, this, is, this doesn't seem very mindful of you. He keeps it turned off. Okay. That's, that's a, very, that's, that's that's a very mindful. Chopra and diff- and, and annoying you. if you're trying to get hold of him. Indeed. Um, I'm looking for the uh, former footballers Didier Drogba and Clarence Seedorf um, if they're around. They're among us. Yes. Yes. So I can whimper and, and, and kind of... Uh, be really impressed by their godlike status. But anyway, <laughs> um, you actually spoke to Nora Super, the senior director of the Milken Institute Center for the Future of Aging. Tell me a little bit about aging. So the future of aging, there's this emerging sense that scientifically proven in fact that we can actually reverse aging. So aging is now optional, is the big theme here this week. And uh, Nora Super talks to me a little bit about there is good aging and now there's bad aging. So how do we do more good aging? Well, let's listen to that discussion now. 
Tell me a little bit, Nora Super, the head of the Future of Aging for the Milken Institute. Tell me a little bit, please, about this idea of societies having people who are aging well and those who aren't aging well. What do those two things look like? So at the Center for the Future of Aging, we've been studying how people can live longer, healthier, more purposeful lives. And you can see a difference in the communities and environments where people age to see how well they age. So there are many elements that go into that. And we've been pushing forward thinking about the year 2030 when there'll be more people um, over the age of 60 than under the age of 10 in the world. And so it's a real tipping point. So the demographics, we're going to see a real demographic sea change. And all of this hand-wringing around this population boom actually isn't necessarily bearing out if we're seeing such an aging population and not one of youth, right? Right. I mean, it it hasn't been as pronounced in the Middle East and Africa as in Asia, of course. We're seeing it. They're in the middle of it right now. 25% of people in Japan are over the age of 65. We see it happening in Europe. And then the U.S. is coming up behind as well. And even uh, in the Middle East and Africa, we're seeing it an increase in people living longer, but not as healthy lives. And so what we've learned about aging is really there are things you can do to really encourage people to be exercising more, to be eating healthier, um, and and trying to increase the, not only the years that they live, but the health of the years, what we call increasing the health span. The health span. So, okay, what you're recommending is basically the old adage of eat less, move more. Bummer. <laughs> yeah, unfortunately, there's no silver bullet, but there are some new uh, scientists really looking at ways to reverse signs of aging. And some people who work in the field say, well, aging's inevitable. We can't reverse that. We can't all live forever. And, you know, I don't think that they are um, talking about people living forever, but we're not talking about immortality, but 120. Exactly. Which is an achievable oh, children, baseline. Children proven. born today, the projections are that they, children born today will live past 100 years old. Which, if you're talking about 120, that's basically you're living a second life after you've retired. Absolutely. So what kind of burden on economies are we talking about? And how do we kind of shift that, these variables? So we're seeing that happen. We're exactly what you said. The way most of our systems have been set up are anticipating that people are only going to live till they're in their 60s and then die shortly thereafter. So most of our government programs have been designed to help people live those last few years of their life. But in reality, what's happening is people are expecting now they'll live 20, 30 years past the age of 65. And so they're working only 40 years of their life and expecting that to support them for the next 30 years of their life. And the math just doesn't add up when you start to look at that. So making these individuals assets to their communities, something that I thought was really interesting that uh, I saw in a Milken report was millennials and those over 65 basically want the same things out of their they communities. They do, they do. We've really been looking at, you know, so, since I've been here, I've noticed um, how much Uber, people use Uber here, ride-sharing apps, things where everything's delivered to their homes. That's what millennials have really made it uh, less of a stigma to have things delivered to you and done at your home and made it uh, easier for older people to ask to have their groceries delivered, for example, to have uh, rides given to them. Right. The ideal life of a millennial looks a lot like the relatively sanitary life of an aging person. Okay. 
that's absolutely <laughs> but we do want i mean there's that but we also want to get people outside and what we've found uh about all the communities where people do age well is they have access to sidewalks uh, ability to walk places um set up the city design so that you can have benches so people can take a rest and still go outside that they're encouraging people to walk uh to be uh among others social isolation is another issue that affects all ages. And scientists are starting to see that social connection can actually lengthen the length of your telomeres, which has is one of the first things that shortens and is a creates the aging process Correct. in the human body. So yes. yeah, I've been doing a lot of homework yeah, this week. I'm, Thank I'm, you, Milken. I'm impressed that you know about the telomeres. <laughs> and that has been what um, scientists have been studying and seeing that social engagement with others really does increase your life and that people often, it's not, as I mentioned, we see this with young people as well. Now that there's such an emphasis on electronics and people are on their phones all the time and aren't interacting with people. Um, the, and actually we see a little less social isolation among older people because they, unless they're in an isolated rural area where they can't um, access people, they're more used to getting out and talking to people. So you're seeing a lot of intergenerational programs where some cities will have someone just sit on a bench and say, I'm here to talk to, and people will walk up and talk. People will encourage conversations where they are. And we see that when people get out and away, um, socially engaged, they're happier, they have more meaning, more purpose. We really um, encourage older people to volunteer, be assets to their community, as you said. Um, we don't, we, as populations are aging, we really call on cities. In our report that we did, we look at three things, what we call um, how we grow, how we build, and how we care. And when we talk about how we grow, it's really a, looking at older people as part of your economic um, growth opportunity. It's not something to push away for people to say, oh, I don't want old people in my community. In fact, older people have a great deal of assets, um, the majority more than younger people because they've already, the kids have already gone to college, they've already bought their home, etc. So spending power. And they have a lot of spending power, but services and products haven't really been delivered to meet their, their needs. But for example, tourism, and you'll see some of the trends towards tourism will be more lectures on history or uh, going to see art museums and things that might not be as appealing to younger populations, but it really has been a boom for people who have more money and time on their hands. Um, so we encourage cities to really bring older people into that discussion to keep older people working longer in some areas where we see that they have uh, could potentially outlive their assets and to give them those opportunities but they represent a massive opportunity. A massive opportunity, yes, yes. That was Nora Super of the Milken Institute talking to Kelsey. Uh, Kelsey Warner, thanks for being with us, Thank as you. usual. Yes. Um, I'll let you enjoy the rest of the uh, Milken Institute Summit. Uh, before we finish here, here are the other stories you need to know about on the national.ae. The OPEC Plus Alliance recommended extending a global pact to restrain oil production until the end of this year, with provisions for a temporary deepening of cuts to counter the impact of the coronavirus outbreak. A number of suitors are lining up with potential offers for embattled NMC Health, which was founded by Indian billionaire B.R. Shetty. And Sharjah's Air Arabia, the only listed carrier in the UAE, reached a milestone of generating more than 1 billion dirhams in net profit last year. That's it for today. If you've enjoyed this show, please do subscribe, leave a review. All that remains is to thank our production team, Arthur Edison and Aisha Khan. And you all for listening. Do join us again next time. <laughs>